On Friday, May 5, 1995, Ricky Balcom was stabbed to death in Geelong's Market Square shopping centre. He was just two weeks past his 16th birthday. The ruthless murder happened at 3.20 in the afternoon outside a busy supermarket witnessed by close to 20 people. The man who led the investigation for the Victoria Police Homicide Squad was now legendary detective Ron Idles. He started questioning witnesses and suspects at the Geelong Police Station that night and was still informant on the case two decades later when he retired from the police force. Idles interviewed Karaya man Carl Haig three days after the killing and charged him with the murder 18 months after that. He was also the man who withdrew that charge in early 1998 when the key witness wavered and another died, forcing the case against Haig to crumble. 20 years later, Ron Idles was retired from policing when the matter finally made it to the Melbourne Supreme Court. He was a key witness at the trial, and after a week of deliberations, the jury found Haig guilty of murder. In the week that verdict was delivered, Ron Idle sat down with me to talk about the cold case murder investigation. We started by discussing the decision to withdraw the murder charge against Carl Haig in 1998. Well, you look at it and you say, I don't have a key witness now, he's deceased. I have another witness who was present at the time, and um, that's Paul Ballard. Mm-hmm. Uh, he later on went to um, tell me that the person responsible was seen at the Geelong show, and that was Carl Hay. So you've got that key witness who makes an identification, who's in a facility because he has emotional and mental issues, and at that time I don't think it was foreseeable that he would um, probably improve. Mm-hmm. So you look at it all and you say, the Crown has to prove it beyond reasonable doubt. Because I'm now missing two or three pieces of the jigsaw or of the, the evidence, it's probably best not to run it. Now, that's a hard decision to make, but in the end, 20 years on, it was the right decision. Mm-hmm. Was it when you retired from the force, and, and a little bit earlier than that, you left the homicide squad, was, it, um, was this a case that kind of stuck in your craw? Was it a frustration to you that you hadn't been able to resolve it? Oh, look, I think so. Um, as uh, homicide detectives, we don't like to fail, I suppose, and we like to see every case that we work on um, being resolved. Having gone so far, having committed to stand trial, and everyone's innocent and proven guilty, but, you know, we thought we had a reasonable case and then it fell apart. Um, yeah, it's always something that's in the back of your mind. Could, could you have done something different? Could you progress it? Uh, and I think... Um, when the cold case looked at it again and then there was a television um, series around eight unsolved murders, uh, people in the community, I think, touched by it and uh, there was some new evidence going forward. Um, let's talk about Carl. He was um, a suspect from very early in this case. What, why was it that he first came to your attention? So Carl came to our attention uh, probably within the first two or three days because it related to an incident about two weeks prior to that, where um, Ricky had been walking along the street uh, and there'd been a, an altercation. Ricky and his mates then went away and they came back, I guess, in force and attacked the car that um, Carl was in. And uh, Carl had made comments that he was going to get find that person and fix him up. Yeah, and you pretty quickly obviously heard about that incident um, mm. once Ricky had passed. So once Ricky um, uh, died, like... Uh, there's a lot of publicity, but within that group of uh, people, I think it was common knowledge that there'd been an incident. Then we went and found Carl's mate, David Lewin, who confirmed that 
the car had been attacked, the car had been taken back to a house in um, Kariah, and that Carl had once said to David, I want to find him and I want to fix him up. So, yeah, from early on, he was a suspect. And what did you make of him when you first, um, when you first interviewed him? Oh, Carl was, to, my, to me, um, very confident, cocky, and somebody who probably didn't have a lot of respect for the police. But that doesn't worry me. That's common, common thing. But, you know, he was confident, he was cocky. Yep. Uh, and we interviewed him and uh, allowed him to go on his way. Um, during the trial, he made some very serious allegations against yourself on he got the stand. Admittedly, that was after you'd given evidence yourself. Um, he spoke about an incident of, he claimed um, that he was beaten up by some of your colleagues before his first interview. He said that you'd coached some witnesses. Um, you obviously didn't get a chance to respond to that at the trial. No, I didn't get a chance to respond to uh, what he ultimately said uh, when he gave evidence, which I think is unfortunate. I think that his uh, defence team would have known full well what he was going to say because that's part and part of it. Normally you can't attack the credit of a witness through somebody else, but that's slightly different when the defendant, if he wants to get up and, and give an account. Not once has Carl ever made a complaint about me. Not once has any witness ever made a complaint about me. And yes, people did change their statements, but we were open and transparent about it. So if I take a statement off Belinda Whitcomb and she's slightly wrong in her times and I can prove that she's wrong in her times by a telephone record or by going to the local tattoo shop who says this is the time that she was here, you go back to her and say, I've now um, gone away and had a look. Is it possible that this could be the time? Yes, it is. So then you take that second statement off them. So we give both of those statements to the defence so you're not trying to hide anything, it's there and it's open. So we never coached anyone. We might have gone back and got a witness to make an additional statement. We never got the witness to change their first statement, though. The first statement stood so that you can see how it all eventuated. Yeah. And what about the... You were not aware of him being beaten up at the Geelong Police Station on the day of his first interview? Carl has never been beaten up on the day of his first interview. His mother was a prison officer. If anything ever happened like that, he could have complained. I interviewed him three, four times. After every interview, he was asked by a senior police officer, are you satisfied with your treatment by the police here today? And the answer is yes. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a total fabrication. And why did it only come out probably in the last six or eight months? And I know he's made some comments, I think, publicly about me. I think after that TV program, I think he realised that maybe his, his number was up. So what do you do? You start to attack attack someone's credibility. Um, on his mother, he suggested at the trial his, his final alibi kind of ended up being, I might have been at home with mum uh, at, at 3.20 when the killing happened. Had he ever mentioned to you that it was worth talking to his mum? Well, he'd spoken to his mum and from my recollection, his mother was at work. You know, when, when you sit down and you actually go through it, between 2pm and 4 o'clock, Carl cannot account for where he is. You know, initially, um, he's getting dropped home, so David Lewin was dropping him home. Then he tries to put himself to Belinda Whitcomb's, you know, three o'clock. Uh, that falls over. Then his first alibi was that he was with David Lewin. Now, that's not produced again at this trial, so there's about four or five different versions. But the reality is, between 2pm and 4 on the day, he's the only person that I know that I spoke to who can't account for their whereabouts.
At what point, um, going back to the initial investigation, at what point do you become um, convinced that he's the man? You know, you have to, I think in any investigation, and this one, like, um, you have a pretty open mind. So in a roundabout way, I think um, Carl would say, I, I wanted him from day one. The name Carl Hagen means nothing to me, it's a person, right? It's not until uh, we do two uh, identification parades, he's not uh, picked up, then I have a conversation sometime with uh, Paul Ballier and he says, look, I was at the show, I saw a person, uh, that person was identified to me as Carl, that's the person who I saw was that Ricky. And then I think the thing that probably really confirms it is uh, I took a statement from Lee Whitcomb, so we're about seven months into the investigation where he says, I saw Carl in the mall at 20 past three. Mm-hmm. So I think when we get to that point, you know, you're, you're reasonably confident that you're on the right track. And then later on, uh, which wasn't led in evidence, was that I took a statement from somebody who was shared a cell uh, with Carl at the Geelong Police Station where Carl made certain admissions. So once we got to that point, I had a conversation, went and had a meeting with the Office of Public Prosecutions, and we decided that we had sufficient to charge him. Um, so Paul Bellier is a, an interesting character, and he obviously had been through hell and back through this ordeal. Um, what, did you, what did you make of him? You obviously would have first interviewed him on the night of the killing, would that be right? Yeah, I spoke to Paul on the night. He was somebody who I would say was a follower. He wasn't a leader, so you had this group of young kids running around terrorising everyone. Paul was someone who was slightly introverted, quiet, smoked dope, uh, openly admitted that. Um, he was controlled, uh, and I think to some extent that probably went again against his own values because eventually he rang me and um, I came to Geelong and he said, look, I've told you some things in the past that aren't true, I now want to tell you, um, I now want to tell you the truth, and he did, and he sat down and he made a statement. I didn't ring him, he rang me. And then he said, look, I'm petrified, I can't leave him Geelong. And I remember that it was about seven o'clock at night by the time I finished the statement. And I drove him to Melbourne, I picked up another colony, and we drove eight hours to New South Wales, and I dropped him off at a relative's um, place, and we drove back and we were back in Melbourne by about eight o'clock in the morning. Uh, But that was, he needed to get away. And then as time went on, he started to rig probably reconstruct his life. Uh, my understanding is he's married, he's got a couple of kids, um, but it's something which has probably tormented him and probably continue to torment him. There's a real sense during the trial of this internal struggle with Paul, that's what, certainly back then, perhaps not when he was on the stand, but that he had this internal struggle between wanting to do the right thing, um, but then also his own fear and his, and his um, loyalty to his gang who was telling him who were telling him not to do any to do I anything think, about I think there was an internal struggle and that was about I've lost a good friend uh, Ricky uh, but I'm still part of this quasi gang and, and I think honestly deep down he, he, he could have there's no doubt I believe he could have identified Carl on both occasions mm. right, so the first occasion when we did an identification parade uh, he basically hung his head and he did stop near Carl, and I know he was asked a question. I've spoken to the inspector who, who uh, ran it, saying, is there anyone that you want to identify? And he says no. Now, the second occasion, he was incarcerated at Marlesford Years Training Centre. 
So whilst the environment was different and Carl was um, behind a, a glass window or the, pe- the people who viewed it were behind glass, again, no identification. And I think on both occasions uh, he could have identified him, which would have changed the whole course of the investigation early on. Yeah. Uh, but he was torn between loyalty to the red bandanas and, and, um, and I think that's caused him probably more issues than anything. Um, how important is he to the case, to the case that's been successfully tried this week? Oh, there's no doubt he's, he, he's important because he's with him at the time of the stabbing. So, you know, his part is, he's, he's, you know, very important and so are other people like um, Simone, who was, um, I think, David's ex-girlfriend. Uh, Nathan's. Nathan's, uh, Nathan O'Neill's ex-girlfriend. You know, so there's people there that have got to come along um, to court 20 years on and face someone who they knew really well and say, well, hang on a minute, he did have a jacket like this. Uh, he got rid of it. So in the end, it's a combination, but you have probably three or four key people and Paul was one of those. And um, do you think that the the new evidence that came through, I think four new witnesses by my count, who weren't available to you when you were investigating the case, do you think that made a substantial difference were you confident when it went to trial this time that we'd get the resolution that um, happened this week? No, I don't think you, I don't think you're ever confident. Uh, but the case was a lot stronger by having um, four new witnesses, and then it's about how they perform in the witness box and the jury to make an assessment. And you know, the judge would say to the jury, "Well, you've seen Paul Ballard. You can accept all his evidence." You can reject his evidence or you can accept part. So it's about how those 12 good people from the community make an assessment of the witness in the witness box. But the case was a lot stronger by having four new uh, witnesses. And, and one in particular where there was uh, a confession made. So then it still comes down to those good people in the jury box. Yeah, and it also gets clouded, I guess, um, this set of these new witnesses, there's the fact that the money is such a substantial reward was on offer, which helps draw people out. But then it gives the defence quite a bit of ammunition to attack their motives for giving evidence, doesn't it? Look over the over the history on the journey of twenty five years of homicide. That's always been an issue when a reward comes out and someone comes forward. But I think sometimes the motivation for them coming forward is not about the money, and some of them don't ask for the money. And investigating homicides over twenty five years, and I always say the answer's in the file. You will have always spoken to the person responsible, so sometimes you've got to come back to it. So if someone was to pick that file up today, Carl's name, name is there, we're going to reinvestigate it. So rewards uh, are good to get it back out into the public arena. And if we go back over history, I think Victoria Police have paid two rewards out of hundreds and hundreds of awards. But what it does is it generates a lot of talk, and then someone might have had that secret, and they eventually come forward and say, listen, I want to tell you. And in this case, I guess there's a lot of people who were silly teenagers at the time and they've matured substantially since that incident happened as well. Perhaps different people than they were then. Look, I think that's uh, people do mature and so we go back to uh, the time that Ricky died. Some of them are 19, you know, and they've gone on and they're married and they've got their own children. Uh, And I think then they start to think, what about if it was my son or my daughter? Uh, I know something and 
you know, I've seen um, Ricky's parents and how upset they are. I'm finally going to come forward and say so. Circumstances change and people's views change, and it's about finding those people that they've told. I don't think I've ever investigated a homicide where uh, the person responsible hasn't told something. It's about finding that person. So at times, uh, someone might give their they made an alibi, but they go ahead and remarry and travel overseas. And ten years later, you know, I've had a phone call. Ron, you know that job in 1994 where Helen Gray was murdered? It's my boyfriend, but I go, no, I can't live with myself. So, you know, circumstances change, people's views change, and they move away from the person who they know is responsible. And then, whatever happens, they come forward. So, how important then is a result? Um, what's been achieved this week on the, um, the Ricky Balcom murder for perhaps other families who have cold cases that they might be hoping for some closure on? Like, I think um, the result shows that 20 years on it can still happen. So there's about 240 homicides that are unsolved, go back to 1953. I think there are people in the community who, who know who's responsible for some of them, but for the families, there's still hope, right? It's about sometimes regenerating, so the cold case union is very important. So sometimes we rely on the media, and I think uh, the classic one is I've, my last case was Michelle Buckingham, who was murdered in 1983 at Shepparton. Um, Tammy Mills, who now writes for The Age, wrote an article in the Shepparton News, and uh, we reinvestigated, and a guy came forward and he said, I want to tell you something. Mm. Uh, that's my brother-in-law. That's a secret I've kept for 28 years. So the media play a big role, I think, in cold cases, unsolved. So families of victims, you know, never give up, but maybe you might want to contact the cold case here. It's a central place now where you can ring in. Might want to say to them, listen, would you ever consider reinvestigating my loved one's death? Get some publicity and you never know what's going to come out of it. The podcast Faith on Trial looks into Hillsong, both in Australia and the U.S., and takes both the listener and hosts on unexpected twists and turns in the story of Brian Houston and the singing preachers. There are two incidents involving Pastor Brian. The Australian journalists uncovered a litany of alleged criminal behavior in the megachurch. Financial gifts were being given to the leaders of the church. Listen to Faith on Trial Hillsong ad-free on Crimex Plus on Apple Podcasts today or wherever you get your podcasts.